0: You are listening to the Forge Leadership Podcast. Forge Leadership Network mentors, connects, and equips young conservatives to lead in politics, culture, and business. For more information or to get involved with Forge, please visit forgeleadership.org. We're about the end. Everybody had a good week? Yeah, well, I and I just got to sit in the back for uh, for Jim Olson, and frankly, I feel a little emasculated. <coughs> and now I'm going to come up and talk, and uh, you know, what are you going to do when you follow James Bond? But here I am, and I'm going to I'm going to try my best. And uh, the the title of this kind of speaks for itself: save the world without losing yourself. And and I. This, this presentation now and versions of it has a, has a long history and, and now because it's basically my reflections in part because I spent a, a lot of time and, and I still spend a lot of time in public policy and working in politics. And you see people who get excited about something, they get engaged for a moment, and then they discover what the political process is like and then they just kind of burn out. Now, I'll ask before I say this, just so I understand the room a little bit. How many of you think, <clears throat> how many of you are planning to go to law school? Let's start with that, because <clears throat> I know this group is, okay, so th- there's a handful. How many of you think you might want to work in politics? Okay. How many of you definitely don't want to work in politics? Okay, and I, and I have a ton of respect for that, right? So I, I, I see you, and, and, I, and, and this, is for, this is for everybody, and, and I... Um, And so I'm in no way trying to encourage people or telling people to work in politics and people who feel called to that We want good people with integrity doing that Um, But that is by no means the only way to make the world better. It's not by no means the only way to Influence the culture and all of us ultimately just need to pursue being who God made us to be and that's the objective and Thankfully God didn't make did not make all of us to be politicians, right? so um, I want to just affirm those of you who are like, that is not for me. But what is for you, what is for all of us, is <clears throat> being who God made us to be. And being who God made us to be in, for the long term, not for a season. Now, there are seasons of life, and things change, and you do different things for certain seasons, and what you're going to do when you're 20 is going to be very different than what you're doing when you're 50, probably, and you're going to have seasons within that. I used to start, you know, measuring my life in months, and now it's more decades, right? You just get a different perspective as you as you get older. And so, what this is about, uh, this is kind of the response that I, I came up with um, when I saw this pattern of people who would get super excited about something. Something would happen in the legislature, a school board. Somebody would come after their nonprofit or their business, and they're like. I've got to go do something about this. I've never been involved in public policy before, but now is the time. I'm going to charge the hill. I'm going to solve the problem because I'm fired up." And so they get involved, they go to lots of meetings, they grab some friends, they go to the legislature, they meet with a few politicians, and then you can just see, like, the spark begin to die. And the cynicism start to set in as they begin to realize what this process is. And you become initiated, and for those of you who have worked in politics, you may have already been initiated in this way, where you make the transition from from hopeful citizen to cynical insider, where you basically see what the sausage factory is actually like. And and of course, The system is a function of the people in the system, and one of the reasons we want good people in there is because we want people who aren't for sale, right? So that's why we do want good people to run for office, because like every system, um, it is corruptible, and it has in fact been corrupted. But to the extent the church influences it on behalf of what is good, true, and beautiful, it becomes less corrupted, right? That's every sphere of the world, so I will speak somewhat tongue-in-cheek and somewhat cynically about the political process, but in no way should that be interpreted to mean um, it's something that can be neglected. In fact, the problem is a function of the lack of influence of people who know um, better. But anyway, but, but people come, they see that process, they get discouraged, and they just decide, you know, I'm done, that was not what I expected, that wasn't particularly fun, I didn't succeed, which is usually the first the, the most discouraging part of it is I, I gave the last 10 months of my life and, you know, and, and, and I didn't win. And they have not read William Wilberforce's biography where apparently it takes more than 10 months sometimes, right? To, to get things done in this process. And so as you embark... Some of you are going to go to law school. Some of you are going to run for office. Some of you are going to run campaigns. Some of you are going to, like, run dental offices. And some of you are going to raise children and be teachers and do other things. Whatever it is that you do, I want to set us up so that we are thinking that we're managing our expectations. One thing I I, I talk about sometimes is the fact that joy, which is more important than happiness, but joy or happiness, however you want to think about that, is always a function of your expectations. It's always a function of your expectations. I'm from Seattle. What does it do in Seattle? Uh-huh. See, everybody knows that. What do people in Seattle do when it rains? They complain about the rain. Right? And then I moved from Seattle to Texas. What is it in Texas? It's hot. What do people in Texas do when it gets hot? They complain about the heat. Is there anything crazier than that, right? Like when you're in Seattle, if you don't want it to be, if you don't like the rain, move. You know what it does here. And so that's life, OK? In life, one of the things that you should accept, I tell my kids this all the time, because I have now, in a couple of weeks, I'll have three teenage daughters. I have two teenage daughters presently. I'm about to have my third. And many of you have been or are teenage daughters. And it's a fun dynamic. It's a fun time of life. And occasionally I hear complaints. And what I tell them in all of that is, you live on Earth. And what you should expect the every day of your life, things are going to happen that you don't like. Every single day. And frankly, it's pretty likely that every single hour something's going to happen that you don't like. Because you live in a broken, corrupt world full of broken, corrupt people, one of whom is you, and you are contributing to the, to the problem. So the idea that we are emotionally traumatized every time something that we don't like happens means that we have done a very poor job of managing our expectations. And as believers, it's important that we wake up and say, this is the day that the Lord has made, but this is the day in which there's a spiritual war, so all sorts of things are going to happen that are going to frustrate me. I'm going to be joyful. I'm not going to be derailed. I'm not going to be taken off mission. I'm going to respond positively. I'm going to respond appropriately. And if that's your expectation, if you wake up with the knowledge that today things are going to happen I don't like, but I don't live for me, I live for Jesus, he's in control of all of it, so that's fine. That's fine. Then, when those things happen, we're not shaken, and it doesn't destroy our joy. So, whatever we're going into, it's a matter, to me... A big part of the success in life is managing our expectations, our success in public policy, government, in, in dealing with the culture. In addition, when it comes to engaging in the political process, and I am going to talk specifically about some of that here, the way we see ourselves when we walk into that system will determine, in my judgment, a lot of It will determine whether we are successful and whether we lose ourselves in the process and where your identity is. So, with that introduction, let's jump into this. There are three contrasts that I want us to make to set up what I think the right identity is as we engage the culture. The first, ambassadors or soldiers? How do you see yourself? If you ever run for office, if you end up working in, in the political system, are you an ambassador or are you a soldier? Now, a lot of people, in the, the political system is, is filled with kind of military symbolism. We talk about campaigns, kind of military campaigns, and we talk about battles, and we talk about enemies, and we talk about target districts and targets, and we kind of have this symbolism because... Politics, like the military, is a zero-sum game in some senses. When you're in a military conflict, either you live or you don't live. There's no really any halfway, right? Well, there is. You can be injured, and so there's other things that happen. But it's, that's kind of you and the enemy. It's like either you die or I die, and I'd prefer it's going to be you, and that's what's happening. In politics, if you get 48% of the vote, you don't get 48% of the seat, right? You win or you lose. It's a zero-sum game. And so we tend to think it's a winner-take-all endeavor, so we're going to treat it like a winner-take-all effort. And and because of that, um, soldiers end up viewing the people on the other side of the conflict as their actual enemy. Because in war, it is. If you're fighting the Taliban, they are your enemy. Mortal enemies because they have committed themselves to killing you. So for you and your family and everything that you love, it it is a choice when they have taken up arms against you. It's either you or it is them. That is not how the political system should work, especially for believers. We, We understand there are people, and that was a lot of the conversation we talked about yesterday with worldview, and I hope that laid the foundation for an understanding of why people who disagree with us politically are not enemies in a personal sense. They may be captives of the enemy, but they are not the enemies. And it is really important that we recognize that up here so we don't treat them as if they are the enemies. Turn with me, If I don't know if any of you have your Bibles, 2 Corinthians 5.20. Turn there with me very quickly, if you can, because I'm going to read this, and, and that, because, because that's kind of the soldier framework. But I think, and this is Paul, of course, in 2 Corinthians, I think he calls us to something different and i'm going to begin second corinthians 5 verse 17 and this is a passage that'll be uh, familiar to many of you he says therefore if anyone is in christ he is a new creation the old has passed away and see the new has come everything is from god who has reconciled us to himself through christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation that is in christ god was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. So this is kind of a a great summary of the gospel. The old has passed. The new has come. Jesus came to reconcile us to God. And then in verse 20, Paul describes what our response to this should be, what that makes us. What is our identity? Therefore, verse 20 We are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And this title that he assigns to us as believers, we are ambassadors for Christ. How is that different than being a soldier for Christ? And we can understand a little bit of those differences by understanding in in our context the difference between a soldier and an ambassador. The job of an ambassador is not the same as the job of a soldier. For several reasons, significantly, the job of an ambassador, that role never ends. Military conflicts, hopefully, are temporary. Now, we can look back through history, and recent history, and some of them seem to be eternal. But they're not designed to be eternal. Ambassadorship, the diplomatic relationship that one country establishes with another, ideally will endure forever and indeed, ideally will endure peaceably. What happens, however, I mean, but, but the experience of an ambassador is different. The experience of the United States ambassador to Canada is different than the U.S. ambassador to Iran, right? Why is that? We don't have an to Iran. Well, if we had an ambassador to Iran, right? No, 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 that's true because we have that, that kind of speaks to the whole problem. But if there was an ambassador to Iran, why would that be different? Because they're hostile, right? Because they don't like us. And so, if we were to, in in culturally speaking, some of us feel like, and, and I'm twice as old as most of you about, and in my lifetime, I have experienced. Where I lived, what I thought, I basically thought I was kind of living in Canada, which is mostly friendly territory. And now, in many ways, it feels like it's turned into Iran, because it's not particularly friendly. Now, what is the temptation? My job, as an ambassador of Christ, is to testify to the truth that God has given us, right? That's my job, to represent the kingdom that has sent me here. Because I'm an ambassador, I've been sent by a kingdom to this world to represent him. Now, what happens? It's easier to do in proverbial Canada than it is to do in proverbial Iran, right? Because the response you're going to get in proverbial Canada is friendlier than in proverbial Iran. But does that give me, as an ambassador, the flexibility or the freedom... To change the position of the nation I represent because the context has changed. Do I have that freedom? No. What happens if I decide to change the position? Change the official statement of the government? Who am I an ambassador for? Myself. We are not ambassadors for ourselves. And this is a large part, a lot of what I think has happened for the church in the western world in the last... 20-30 years we used to be ambassadors for Christ, and it was pretty friendly territory So it was a relatively easy assignment It became a more difficult assignment and a lot of us have decided that we now represent ourselves And we intercept the communications on its way to its intended target And we edit it because we don't want to be the one who delivers the message as originally created Because we don't like the implications of that if you do that you are not an ambassador for Christ You are an ambassador for yourself. It is really important that we be ambassadors for Christ. The second choice, in addition to ambassadors or soldiers, that we have to make. Are we pursuing primarily truth, or are we primarily pursuing political victory? John 18, 37. This is Jesus' trial. For this reason I was born, for this purpose I came into the world, to bear witness to the truth. That's what Jesus came here to do, to just speak the truth into every situation. Go to Genesis 3 real quickly. I'll just, you you can pull it up, but I'll just uh, remind you of the story. Adam, Eve is wandering around in the garden. Probably not wandering. She had some purpose, right? They had been given one rule. One rule. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the only rule. We have a lot more rules than that, but that was the only one they had. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent comes in. And I guess I'm going to read it because I'm talking about it. The serpent comes in and she says, the w- did, and here's the question. This is the question at the root of all sin. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, what did he say? Did God Really say Did God really say that you should not Eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil That's the root Of all sin Can you believe What God said Is it true And you live in that garden Right now where Continually People around you are asking that question Did God really Say that you can't Pick your gender Did God really say that you can't do whatever you want sexually and that that will lead to pain and misery and suffering? Did God really say? Now here's the conversation. She answers the question, right? Eve gets the question and she says, The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. So she knows the answer to the question. But here's what his response is. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You will be like God. You will become self-created. Then you can live your authentic truth and self. And you can determine your own identity. You can determine your own reality. You can be like God, right? It's an old story, but it's kind of contemporary. You will be like God. So here's the rationalization that Eve went through. And each of you should like meditate on this because this is the eternal challenge for all of us who are sinners and daily tempted by sin. And here's, what the wo- and here's her rationalization. So verse 6, The woman saw that the tree was... One, it was good for food. It was delightful to look at. It was beautiful. And it was desirable for obtaining wisdom, or to make one wise. So the last part of her rationalization, she actually convinced herself it was desirable to do the thing that she had, four verses before, acknowledged that God told her not to do. This is the root of all sin. This is the root of your sin. This is the result root of my sin. It's the result of, it's the root of the cultural rebellion that we all live in the midst of. Nobody thinks they're the bad guy. Every one of us convinces ourselves that what we are doing is the right thing to do when we do it. It's desirable to make one wise. It's virtuous. It's loving. It's tolerant. It's inclusive. We find some Christian-y or just like tolerant or whatever our value system is way to convince ourselves that our defiance of what God said is true is actually the right thing to do. That's all sin. But Jesus said in, eight, in, in John 18.37, why have I come into the world to testify to the truth? We as ambassadors for Christ, our role, when somebody asks the question and they do all day every day, did God really say We are the ambassadors for Christ's place here on earth. And what's the answer to the question for us? Yes. Now, as ambassadors, we don't necessarily control the response that they have. But what we do have control over is whether we will, with fidelity, represent the position of the one who sent us here. Now, what are the alternatives as we talk about whether we're pursuing truth or political victory? You know many examples of people who get into the the political space and suddenly, you know, the truth is less important than winning. We now have a president who uh, became president because he changed his long-standing position on the Hyde Amendment. There's no way he would have gotten the nomination. And he is now aggressively and faithfully at war with the Hyde Amendment, though spending his whole career defending it because he knew, and it's true, he would not be in the White House, the abortion lobby would not abide somebody who did not want to spend taxpayer dollars on abortion to be the Democratic nominee in the White House. And so he decided, I'm willing to sell that conviction. OK. John Kerry back in the day, do you remember the whole, uh, I was, you guys are all too young for this. I was, I was for it before I, I voted for it before I voted against it. You guys probably don't remember that. It was this big, uh, uh, when he was running against uh, George Bush in 2004. It was this big spending appropriations issue, and he, he had voted against funding for the war against terror. And, but his comment was, well, I was for it before I was against it, which is kind of inarticulate and not that helpful. But, you know, makes the point that he's trying to play both sides of the fence, as everybody often does. President Obama um, campaigned in 2008 of real marriage, as an opponent of same-sex marriage. He believed marriage was a relationship between a man and a woman. Did he actually believe that? Meh, probably not. But did he change his position as soon as he thought it was politically palatable? Absolutely. Now, lest you think this is a purely left-wing problem, the Republicans had full control of the Congress after promising everyone that they were about to defund Planned Parenthood. As soon as they got control of all three branches of the government, did anything happen to Planned Parenthood funding? Eh. A little too difficult, I guess. We said what we needed to say, we got elected, and now, you know, for whatever reason, we can't figure out how to do that, right? So this is just part of the process. And if you are mostly interested in winning rather than pursuing what is true, you will find yourself in that situation as well. What happens when you value winning over truth? Your political opponents become personal enemies. That's part of it. Because they are the obstacle to your political goals. And you will treat them that way. Proverbs 6.19. It talks about six things God hates. And this is very practical, I think, in, uh, in the political space. Proverbs 6.19. It is, talks about the six things God hates. It actually, it starts in verse 16. The Lord hates six things. In fact, seven are detestable to him. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, feet eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and one who stirs up trouble among brothers. Some translations will say one who stirs, one who stirs up strife among brothers, which is basically the dictionary definition of negative campaign ads. <laughs> and the purpose is to omit relevant information to make somebody else another image bearer, look as bad as possible because the data and our consultants have all told us that the best way to win is not make yourself desirable to your base, to the voters, but to make the other guy look like he has a forked tongue and horns. And so we spend a lot of money, more money than we spend telling people about what we can do. We spend more money than that making other people look terrible. Now, I'm totally in support of ads that reveal the truth about who people are and what they believe and what they're going to do and what they have done. But so much of that omits relevant information that is a distortion of reality, and they know it and we know it, but everybody does it because it's effective, we are told. And we as believers should not be willing to do that if we pursue victory more than the truth. You end up supporting whatever is popular, even if it's absurd even if it's absurd. You guys are all familiar with the Emperor's New Clothes, I I assume that story. We are living in the Emperor's New Clothes, in a world in which we are compelled to deny that biology and gender have any connection to each other, because powerful forces have told us that that's intolerant, and that's silly, and they even line up these medical professionals to tell us that that's not true. And it really does take a child who has not yet been brainwashed by the system, to stand up and say, hey, look, he's naked. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's a, you know, and I had this experience. Um, a couple years ago, we took our kids to get haircuts, and my son, who is now 10, he was probably like four or five, and his sister was getting a haircut over in this chair. He'd just gotten a haircut. He got out of his chair, and he ran over to her, and he goes, hey, look, Brenna, that man's wearing a dress. <laughs> because there was a man identifying as a woman, cutting hair, and everybody in the room beside the four-year-old knew what we were supposed to do, but the four-year-old had no hesitancy like pointing out how unusual and strange that is, right? Because we've all been conditioned, and there are people who run on these platforms because if you're not primarily interested in what is true, you will believe anything, even if it's absurd. In addition to this, pursuing political victory over the truth gives you a short term understanding of what victory means. As Christians, losing a legislative battle, losing a campaign is not defining, and it must not be, and we have to to recognize that. What's, What's a real loss is losing your anchor. When your anchor gets detached from its foundation, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul, right? That's got to be our understanding. When Jesus was on the cross, did it look like he was winning? It did not. Was he winning? Was God's plan being fulfilled? It was. Now, Jesus had surrendered to that, which is our example, as we just surrender our plan to God's plan every day, all day, for the rest of our lives. That's discipleship. And sometimes it doesn't look like you're winning. But for us, the standard of whether we're winning today should be not, does it look like we're winning? Are we feeling successful? Does everybody think we're winning? Are we obeying? Are we obeying? Are you doing what Jesus has asked you to do today? If the answer to that is no, change. Repent and believe. If the answer to that is yes... Let God handle the circumstances and make peace with that. Think about the story of Noah. How long was he building that ark? Anybody know? Yes, sir. Yeah, it was was a long time. Noah looked insane. Insane building a boat in his backyard. They'd never even seen rain before. What are you doing, man? For a long time, he was the village idiot. And then in the span of 20 minutes, he was the smartest man who ever lived. And boy, did everybody else wish they had a boat. Right? So just accept that your obedience... There are moments, there are seasons, centuries perhaps, where your obedience is going to look insane to a lot of people. But if that's what God has told you to do, that's okay. That's okay. And we need to, in pursuit of truth, we need to recognize that victory for us as believers looks different than victory for other people. Okay, And it has to be long-term. It cannot be short-term the other option, the other choice we need to make. Are we going to motivate people with hope or with fear? Now, in the political process, in the political environment, anybody who has uh, run a nonprofit organization and tried to run, raise funds, they always tell you that you scare people about the other side, then convince them the solution is giving you $25. And that's how you save the world. $25 checks at a time, right? And you create a crisis. The sky is falling. Look at the left. Look at the Democrats. Look at the LGBT whatever. This is terrible. Look at the abortion lobby. The only thing you have to do is give me money. The problem with all of that, when you are constantly motivating by making people afraid of people, of other people, of the other, the them, whoever that is, you communicate that you don't really believe God is who he says he is. Because fear is doubt. Fear is doubt. and this is why hundreds of times, and I don't know what the number is actually in Scripture, 385 times or something like that, right? It says, fear not. God's constantly telling us to fear not. Why do we not need to be afraid? Because he's in charge of everything all the time. Now, that doesn't, it's not a get out of, free, get out of jail free card when it comes to pain and difficulty, right? but it's, a, it, it's, it's an understanding. Joy is not the absence of sadness in all time. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit in our sadness, in our pain, in the knowledge that this is as bad as it ever gets. And it is definitely going to get better. But in right-wing political circles, there's kind of been this tendency to everybody put on a triangle hat right and let's go back to 1776 when everything was right (laughs) of course not everything was right in 1776 in the same way everything is not right in 2021 looking forward as believers we can create a vision for a world it's so much i think better to give people a vision of what a world looks like when everybody has surrendered to the lordship of jesus in every area of their life what does that world look like? Let's talk about that. Let's th- we don't need to rewind the clock to 1776 or 1950 or whenever you thought things were better. They may have been better, but in some ways, they definitely weren't. As we engage, it's much, it, 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 rather than being afraid of the future, and how many of you guys have seen, uh, what's the never not be afraid, the Croods, right? You guys know that? Right. You guys just don't have children that are as young as mine. So I watched all these Disney movies. Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the father in this Neanderthal family, and he's trying to protect them with his caveman instincts. And his, his anthem is, never not be afraid, right? It's kind of like the COVID people now. <laughs> and it's just, he's always using fear as a way to protect his family. Control is an illusion, guys. And the sooner we realize that, the better it is. You have control over nothing. You have even the things that you think you have complete control over. You don't have control over. God is just like, in His grace, giving you some sense of peace about it and making you feel like you have some control over it. But a girl in our school, 15 years old, um, died three days ago. She had something in her brain, and a, a brain bleed that she'd had there since birth. Just the clock was ticking. She is done. She's home to be with the Lord, but. Boy, as a father, that hits you hard. And you realize how temporary everything is. And the things that you think you can count on and the things that you think you have control over, you don't. You don't. That's not, again, that should not make us feel afraid. It should cause us to hold loosely the things that we think we have control over. And, and we have to, in our hearts, pre-surrender them to the Lord's control because ultimately he's the one in control of them Anyway. But if we are going to motivate with hope rather than fear, there's a key question here. Are you actually hopeful? You cannot make other people hopeful if you are not hopeful. If you engage in this because you're afraid of them or them or them or them or or whoever that is, your fear will be communicated to other people if you engage in this because you know Jesus is Lord, he's in control of everything, he's given us the keys to human flourishing, we are ambassadors for Christ, and we are here to tell the whole world about the solution to their pain and their misery and their fear and their loneliness, then, if that's what really motivates you, it's easy, because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you're hopeful, if you're joyful, if you're confident, you can't help but communicate that. If you're afraid, if you're sad, If you're lonely you will communicate that as well so if we are to be people who communicate hope to the world that badly badly needs hope we have to make sure that we understand why we should be hopeful and we have to have that sincerely deep embedded in us because we know who Jesus is we know what he has promised us and so we can get up today our expectations perfectly managed because we know the environment we are in is imperfect but we also know that it's temporary and eternity is going to be awesome. So our choices, the combination of these things, are we going to be a soldier who uses fear to achieve political victory? We're going to see ourselves. Is that our identity? Is that the identity, is that the way you see yourself when you go run this campaign or when you run for office or whenever you do what you're going to do? Or are you an ambassador for Christ who uses hope to move people toward the truth? Do you understand that your assignment is as long as Jesus gives you breath? And it's not because you're afraid of anyone or anything, but because you love Jesus and you understand how good he is and you want the rest of the world to be relieved from their pain and sadness as well. Now, how to do this? How to be an ambassador for Christ? And I'm going to go a little Dr. Phil on you for a second. Because this is not like science. This is just kind of like me just observing some things and talking about what I think is important and what some of the things that I think the church uh, needs. And so I'm going to share that with you here in in the next few minutes. How to be an ambassador for Christ. First, reject passivity. Have no part with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. We talked about this yesterday. One of the great... Uh, vulnerabilities of a culture that values tolerance above everything else is the incredible incentive it creates to do nothing about a lot of bad things because it's judgmental. Now, the first way in which you are encouraged to do nothing about bad things is in your own life, and it's got to start with you. It's got to start with you. You will be encouraged by many around you to not care, to lower the standards, to just conform, you will have people cheerlead you into mediocrity forever and ever and ever. And it's important that you extract yourselves from those people and surround yourself by people who will not cheerlead you in your mediocrity. You cannot be passive with yourself, and once you have figured out how not to be passive with yourself, you cannot be passive with the world around you. Christians, when we are called to cast down every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, that's 2 Corinthians 10.5. That is an active pursuit. We, cast, we see the lies, we address them. Now, we don't have to, you know, you, you do have to pick your battles, and you can't confront every lie. You can't confront, your, it's not you, your personal responsibility, or my personal responsibility to solve every problem in the world. But if we find ourselves solving no problems in the world because we don't like to confront people and, you know, I don't want to be confrontational, then we have a problem. Reject passivity. Reject it in your own life and reject it in the, envir- in the world around you. Secondly, focus on who you are becoming, not what you are accomplishing. Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You guys live in a uniquely challenging time to grow up and, and, and you've, I undoubtedly heard all sorts of commentary about why social media makes your life challenging. Because you are exposed to so many other people's lives. And you are exposed to basically fictionalized versions of other people's lives and you don't realize that they are fictionalized. And what that does is it ha- it creates an incredible temptation to be dissatisfied with your own experience because oh they have more they have a better job they're doing cooler things uh, they have a better relationship they have tons of friends whatever that is and it will cr- in the temptation is to create deep sa- dissatisfaction with your own experience patience is critical in Understanding, and I kind of touched on this point a moment ago, is if you are obeying today, let that be the test of whether you are winning or losing today. And in the same way, you have dreams and ambitions, and some of those might be from God, and some of those might be things that he asks you to surrender. But ultimately, you have to let him drive the ship. And contentment. I have learned that in all seasons, always, to be content whether I have You know, and Paul was describing it, he had great power, he had no power, he had great wealth, then he had nothing. He'd learned to be content in whatever season that was. Why? Because of where his faith was ultimately placed. And you guys, more than other generations, are faced with a temptation for discontentment just because of so many other things that you see. And the temptation to say, well, that guy started some kind of tech startup in his garage when he was 19, and he's 24, and he just sold it, and now he lives on a yacht. What am I doing wrong, and why is my life so terrible, right? Right? Because he did it by now, and I'm older than him, and, you know, I drive a jalopy, and I live in a studio in a neighborhood I don't even like. or whatever, whatever that is, let God take you on your own journey. It's great to learn from other people's experience, but do not try to duplicate other people's experience. God has something unique and special and awesome for you, Allow him to reveal that to you and embrace the patience necessary to have that develop. And in the process, the question you should ask today is not, you know, do I have the relationship I want? Do I have the job I want? Do I have the car I want? Am I becoming more today like Jesus than I was yesterday? And when you focus on who you are becoming then you will become something that is much more useful to him. And as you are more useful to him, you will find God supernaturally opening doors. And God is much better at creating opportunities than you are, I assure you. Much better. But if you try to re- wrestle back control and force the issue because you think it's not happening fast enough, it's very likely to cause more problems and solutions. Again, Matthew 23, 12, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Next, get married. (laughs) This is my favorite part of this, perhaps. Now, I have to qualify this a bit by saying, because I I, want to be consistent with what I just got done saying, is that everybody has their own path and their own timing, right? And this is, I don't think God intended everybody to be married by the time they're 20. But, What I do want to say, that your generation, and there's a lot of pressure to, I'm going to get my job, be financially secure. I want to get a house. There's a bunch of places around the world I want to see. And then once I'm successful, then I've I've built my Sunday. Then the cherry on the top is a spouse, right? And now my life is complete. I am a successful human yay me. I can put it on Instagram and everyone will applaud. (laughs) Right? That's how a lot of people view marriage. And what I would like to encourage you to do is see marriage not as the capstone event of your life, but as a cornerstone event of your life. And I say this as somebody who got married when I was 22, my wife was 20. So I have my own perspective and um, best thing I ever did. Now, Don't marry somebody who's not worthy. And my best advice to you is assuming you have parents who share your perspective on that, give them a lot of input. And if they say that's a disaster, walk away. My experience the two best ways to ruin your life and everybody around you substance abuse and a bad relationship. They're just as damaging. So it's another area in which we don't necessarily want to follow our heart, right? Because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, especially when it comes to beautiful women, men, or guys. Works both ways. But the point is, get input. But if you find somebody who loves Jesus, who's willing, who is going to be a great parent, and the other thing is, as I, as I go Dr. Phil on this, the other say, <laughs> thing I'll say um, about relationships when you're choosing a spouse Something that has, has become increasingly like, significant for me, um, and I didn't realize this, don't marry someone lazy. And the reason it's really important not to marry somebody lazy is because you can't be a good parent if you're lazy. Because parenting is exhausting. It's exhausting. Amen? Right? No, and, and you are raising these little terrorists, and all they have, and they got nothing but time to try to beat you down. And if you are lazy, they will win. <laughs> and, and, I'm, and, I, I'm, and it's kind of funny, but it's, I'm deadly serious about this. That if you, the, the, the temptation to surrender, to give them what they want, fine, just go sit over there and watch TV, just do whatever you want, just stop bothering me. That temptation is so strong, and if you do that, you will, you will raise big terrorists. And you know them, some of those people who were never told no by their parents because their parents didn't want to work that hard. So this is, a, this is not part of my script, but in the whole getting married thing, but it, it is true. Don't be lazy, don't marry somebody who's lazy because it's really hard to parent if you're lazy. So related to that, my next point, take responsibility. Take responsibility even for things that you don't have responsibility for. Take the initiative, be somebody who sees the problem, And addresses it. And this is really kind of this is connected to the laziness thing. But if you want to be employable, eminently employable, I mean it's so simple. I talk to my kids this about this all the time. As somebody who's employed people and knows other people who do, if you can do what you say, show up on time, and then actually take the initiative to solve some problems, you will will have people dying to have you work for them. It doesn't even matter what the space is. There's no way you can be poor if you show up on time, do what you say you're going to do, and solve and anticipate problems so other people don't have to tell you what to do all the time. Micromanage. You develop those skills. I mean, there's other things that are important in life, and you'll develop other skills as well. But that, as a foundation, people will love you. Related to that, (laughs) never complain. Even when you're right. Just don't. It's so, I mean, we complain oftentimes as a way of kind of like trying to generate sympathy. Oh, I couldn't do that because of X, Y, and Z. Oh, you know, it was just too hard. It was too, you know, whatever it was. You want to know what generates goodwill with people? Is somebody who you know has been treated unjustly, who you know has been wrong, who actually faced a lot of really difficulty, but didn't blame but didn't use those as excuses. You want to generate goodwill with people? Develop the habit to never complain even if if you had an opportunity to. Even if you're right. Even if you're right. Just don't complain. And that will get you a long way with a lot of people. Last thing I'm going to say on this. Surrender your reputation. And this is particularly important for anybody who thinks they want to... Actually, it's, it's, it's important in politics, but it's important everywhere at this point. Surrender your reputation. Why do I emphasize this? Because you live in a world where this is happening all the time, where everybody's being told to build your personal brand. For my money, the primary reason the church is not as effective as it could be in the world that we live in today is because we are way too concerned with how people who hate Jesus feel about us we have created this environment where we want to be thought well of, even by a world that Jesus promised us would hate him, hate us, because of him. No man can serve two masters, and if we get stuck here, our effectiveness is going to be greatly, greatly harmed. You've heard a little bit of my background. I I ran the Family Policy Institute of Washington for 10 years in Washington State. And I took that job in 2008. And just before that, um, it was just kind of the the run-up to the marriage issue being an issue um, nationally. Same-sex marriage wasn't a thing yet. Domestic partnerships were, they were being discussed. And I was in a Bible study with a group of guys and I, w- I, I remember the statement that I said it was, we were having this conversation about whether I wanted to do this job and what I said was I just don't know if I want to be anti-same-sex marriage guy in Washington State. Because I could see that coming. Everybody knew that issue was coming and this organization was going to be out in front of that. And I was uncomfortable with the idea that the thing that people would most identify me with is opposition to same-sex marriage. right? Because that's kind of like That doesn't define me in reality, but you don't really want other people to have that define you. And there are a handful of moments in which God has spoken to me, like very clearly, like interrupted my train of thought in my life. And this was one of them. And he said, you need to surrender your reputation. And you've been in church services where people talk about surrendering your money and your plans and your relationships and all those things. Surrender those to God. But I have heard... In, in my judgment, not enough recognition of how, because, because your reputation in a build your personal brand world is an asset that is invisible that we all, we all acknowledge now exists. And if it is important to you, the fear of man is a snare and it will totally prevent you from being who God intended you to be. And so at that point in my life, I literally got on my knees and I said, Jesus, if Nobody else in the world thinks anything good about me, but you do, I'm fine with that. And that was the most freeing thing I've ever done in my life. Most freeing thing I've ever done in my life. Now, do I still struggle with the fair man? Of course, I'm human. But once you take that leap, <laughs> and the best thing about it is because I ended up running the marriage campaign, and I, had, I was the daily douchebag of the strangers. This is the gay newspaper in Seattle so many times. And the, the, the beauty of it was, I took the worst they had, and it was nothing. Like, eh. Everybody who loved me then still loves me now, and in fact, I have a lot more friends now than I did then. And a bunch of people who wouldn't have known about me kind of don't like me online, but what do I care? My life is infinitely better because of that. Because of that. And I see so many people who are bound, and in, in, in just a church, corporately, bound by the idea that I really need these people to like me, and if I... If I'm too Christian, then maybe they're not going to. Antonin Scalia. Hopefully you know him. He's one of my favorites. God assumed from the beginning that the wise of the world would view Christians as fools, and he has not been disappointed. Devout Christians are destined to be regarded as fools in modern society. We are fools for Christ's sake. We must pray for courage to endure the scorn of the sophisticated world. If I have brought any message today, it is this. Have the courage to have your wisdom regarded as stupidity. Be fools for Christ. And have the courage to suffer the contempt of the sophisticated world. I'm going to finish with this story, which I know you'll all be familiar with. But there's a very current twist on this. This is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel chapter 3. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. If you don't, I'm going to read it for you. The the lead up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Israeli Jewish boys in captivity in Babylon. Babylon is a very hostile culture to the Jewish tradition. They have actually gained a lot of, of authority because... Nebuchadnezzar likes them. They're smart, they're industrious, they're honest. He's promoted them within the Babylonian government, so they have positions of influence. But Nebuchadnezzar, as a fidelity test to Nebuchadnezzar, he creates the statue in the middle of the town square, whatever it is. This golden statue. And as a way of proving loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar, everyone is told to gather. And when when the band plays everyone will bow to the idol. And in doing so, prove your loyalty and your fidelity to Nebuchadnezzar, and then everyone will move on, and Nebuchadnezzar will know that his subjects are appropriately subjugated. They blow the instruments, everybody bows except Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. King Nebuchadnezzar is not happy about this. And so, verse 13, Daniel 3, verse 13. Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before him. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the golden statue I have set up? Now that's the question. Is it true that you don't serve my statue? Now he knew they were Jews because he'd taken them from Israel, and they were captives in Babylon. So he knew that they had this Yahweh thing that they were into. And he didn't mind that they had this Yahweh thing that he was in, they were into. But what was he objecting to? Is it true that you don't serve my gods or the statue I have erected? Fast forward, first century Rome, Jesus enters the world. Also a polytheistic culture, All sorts of gods that everybody worshipped. No objection to all of those other gods, but who did you have to worship? Caesar. The problem with the church in the first century was not that they worshipped Jesus, it's that they said there's no king but Jesus. Today, they don't care if you claim to be a Christian. They just want to know if you're going to worship their gods too. If you say you're a Christian and you bow to their Golden statues with rainbow flags, they're fine with you. The issue is if you don't worship their gods as well. So that's the question. Is it true that you refuse to worship the golden statue that I have set up? Now we're in verse 15. Now if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, Zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music. Fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God that can rescue you from my power? And this is, in many ways, the challenge that is to be given to the church today. Is it true that you don't worship the cultural idols that we have created because your Jesus commands you not to? Is that true? You better, otherwise we're going to send a Twitter mob after you, or we're going to protest your business, or we're going to do all sorts of things, right? It's a virtual fiery furnace that they have at this point. But here's their response, and I encourage you to submit this to memory. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, We don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But, even if he does not rescue us, we want you to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you'd set up. So their response is twofold. First, our God can rescue us from anything you threaten us with. Second, we don't care if he does. We're not worshiping your idols. Now, for those of you who know the end of the story, right? we all want to be part of changing the culture, don't we? We want to make the world a better place. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wanted to make the world a better place. Did God use their brilliance, their marketing acumen, their strategic mind To change the heart of the king. No. What did he use? He used their obedience. He used their confidence that they had in the fact that God is who he said he is. He can save them from anything. And because of that, the nation was turned and God got all the glory. Because that's how he wants it anyway. He doesn't want to share it with you. And we shouldn't want him to share it with us because we don't deserve any of it anyway. And so the application for us, as you go into whatever space that you're going to go into, God is not primarily interested in your genius. He's given you great minds. Use them. But the the impact that he makes with you in this life is not going to be primarily because of how awesome and talented and good-looking you are, though you are all of those things, I assure you. It's going to be because you sold out. You believed who he, he is, who he said he is. And because of your faith, he's able to do miracles that make it undeniable to everybody around you that God is real. That's how it's going to change the world. Let's pray. Father, we, just, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, uh, the examples of, of history that the we can uh, rely on the shoulders that we get to stand on of people who have experienced you in amazing ways and god we ask for a uh, the gift of faith to trust you in all times and in all ways and that we would uh, depend on you more and more day by day god and that uh, we would decrease and that you would increase and that in our uh, in our small uh, sacrifices that we are able to give god that you would be glorified and that many would come to know you as a result of our lives in Jesus name we pray amen, amen. thank you for listening to the forge leadership podcast If you like the show, please drop a review and be sure to subscribe for all our latest episodes. You can follow Forge Leadership Network at Forge Leadership on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For more information about Forge programming, please visit forgeleadership.org.